Howdy, Green Rush Nation. Producer Shea Gunther with a quick announcement before we get into the show. We're trying something new and fun at MJ Today Media, and we've launched a Discord server, which is kind of like Slack, but with support for audio and video streaming. We're hosting a special audio fireside chat with our very own Chris Crane, a longtime host and regular on our flagship show, Marijuana Today, and one of the more respected people around legal cannabis. He'll be chatting with all the folks who roll into our new Discord server tonight, Thursday, December 10th, from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard. It's very, very easy to join in. You just need to open up the website discord.gg slash mjtoday. That's discord.gg slash mjtoday. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe, Lewis Goldberg, and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, Nick and guest host Nick Carlson are speaking with Timothy Coe, CEO of Entheon Biomedical, a company that is pioneering a leading-edge addiction recovery solution that harnesses an optimizes the therapeutic potential of the DMT molecule. Entheon exists to invert the addiction recovery ratio, turning the untreatable case and lost cause from the norm to the exception. When it comes to treating addiction, the rate of success is so low that society has been conditioned to accept and even expect failure. This manner of thinking is both unacceptable and counterproductive. We need instead an alternative approach that addresses the human cost of addiction for individuals, families, and society at large. Entheon is developing a DMT-assisted therapeutical protocol that will be specifically tailored to address the core mechanisms underlying drug-seeking and using behavior. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now onto our conversation with Timothy Coe from Entheon Biomedical. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Um, to kick off, what, can you just give us some uh, some background on Entheon Biomedical? What do you guys do? Yeah, it's a good question. Hopefully not too complicated an answer. And I just want to thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to speak with you guys today. Um, yeah, so Entheon Biomedical, we're a psychedelic research company. And I guess what we're really trying to do is upend and invert uh, the expectations around addiction. I think all too often when someone does you know, uh, become a substance use disorder sufferer. Um, you know, the family, friends, and the sufferer themselves almost sort of relinquish themselves to a place of acceptance. Um, you know, despite uh, you know, everyone's sort of best intentions and wishes for that person to get well, um, often it does become almost like a death sentence where um, it being such a complex issue um, with such low rates of efficacy, um, oftentimes people just sort of pull their hair and say, oh my God, this might be uh, what sort of takes uh, this person out. And so what we're trying to do with uh, Entheon Biomedical is, you know, really invert that by approaching drug addiction from an entirely new angle. Um, so understanding that, you know, addiction being such a 
vastly complex emotional psychological issue that takes into uh, account sort of really complex life narratives, um, traumas, and different barriers. Um, you know, you need something super powerful um, to really get to the core of the person, and so they can re really reconfigure. Um, what their internal makeup is like, what their belief systems and the, how these belief systems affect their behavior. And so uh, we're taking DMT, uh, really synthetically pure DMT, um, fully synthesized, over 99.7% pure um, GMP standard DMT, and finding a way to administer it um, you know, in a way that's safe, uh, gradual, and tolerable uh, over time so that um, the individual or the, uh, the patient um, can have these massively powerful experiences and really take new perceptive, uh, a new perceptive lens to how they view their life uh, through these really powerful psychedelic experiences. So what we're doing is we're doing continuous infusion of DMT. Um, so that's an intravenous infusion of DMT to really promote those experiences and hopefully have these profound effects. But uh, I guess before I you know, leave it at that, it's really important to also to contextualize this um, that this isn't just a drug experience alone, right? There's a really necessary framework um, to properly prepare the patient for this, you know, hugely life-changing experience. So um, there is a psychotherapeutic uh, support and um, preparation that takes place before that. So um, yeah, we're really trying to come up with a, uh, a drug addiction program that really addresses, um, you know, what the person's internal matrixes are. And so um, we're focused on the development of this drug uh, drug product, drug delivery technology, but um, fitting that within this larger therapeutic context so that we ensure that, um, you know, the person uh, really does go into this with the right intentions and the right framing so that, um, you know, following this experience, uh, they can really recontextualize it and consolidate who they are. So, so Tim, you know, you, you've led a number of different ventures in the past. How did you come to lead the company and, and when did you become personally interested in, uh, in psychedelics? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. Um, you know, I used to sort of keep it a bit secret, but I've been interested in psychedelics my whole life. Um, <laughs> I think that started when I was about 14 years old as a you know, good Christian Sunday school kid who's maybe had some pretty rigid beliefs about what life was and uh, my role within it. So at about 14 years old, I'm not advocating this for any of your younger listeners, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, I did I did have the opportunity that I, I, I acted on pretty, pretty regularly. Um, no, but I, I, you know, I started doing some psychedelics when I was about 14. And for me, it was a really mind expanding experience, right? Where I think before that, I, you know, pretty rigid beliefs, like some anxieties and existential anxieties about, you know, uh, maybe punitive or scorekeeping type of, you know, God or religiosity that um, I guess in my teens, um, you know, the new perceptions and sort of new ways of thinking that psychedelics brought to me really did sort of blow my mind. And then most sort of, you know, literal, not literal, like my brain didn't disintegrate, but it did really blow my mind and sort of expanded my, what I thought to be possible. Um, and, you know, in later life that becomes really pertinent because I think, uh, drug addicted populations sometimes do get so entrenched in a set of beliefs that that world or realm of possibility gets really, really shrunk down. You know, there's some really rigid beliefs about, 
you know, what's possible from the perspective of optimism or, you know, based on a narrative perspective, like, oh, bad things have happened to me and so bad things will continue to happen to me. So I think there's some relevance to that idea of the to broadening the possibilities. Um, but I guess more recently, um, yeah, I get, you know, I'm about to get into a pretty personal story. Um, you know, my brother died of drug addiction in uh, March of 2019. Um, and so before, sorry, no, I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, before that happened, right. It's like, that's a very crystalline event. Um, you know, when a person becomes a statistic, it's, you know, then, you know, they become you know, uh, just a, another number within that massive number of like people that really shouldn't have lost their lives to drug addiction. Um, but before that, it was like a, you know, he was a drug user for two decades, right? Um, and that's, uh, and that two decades was not a sort of easy type of experience. There was a lot of ups and downs or successes and failures, as well as every conventional method of treating drug addiction was, you know, that being attempted on him, whether it was residential treatment centers, you know, of which, you know, there are probably a dozen over the course of a decade, um, you know, that each range from $5,000 a month to something like, you know, $30,000 per stay. Uh, there's medication assisted therapies like methadone, suboxone. Uh, there's, you know, uh, you know, medications like antidepressants, antipsychotics, anxiolytics, um, you know, their stays in uh, mental health institutions. And electroconvulsive therapy, mindfulness training, psychotherapy, psychology, um, everything like, you know, piecemeal and together at once was thrown at my brother. Um, but for some reason, uh, those things in combination, um, used a variety of times, didn't have that aggregate effect of, you know, reducing those drug seeking symptoms as they were intended to providing that stability that was needed so that the sort of inward going psychotherapies could uh, have that, you know, desired intent. Um, so yeah, like that was that whole process. And like, I became responsible for my brother's care when my parents were like literally at wit's end, they didn't know what else to do. They didn't know what the fine line between enabling and helping was. Um, and so I, you know, I've gone through some personal work before. And so I said, yeah, I'll try to help uh, Doug, you know, get better. And yeah, what proceeded over the course of about two years where I was sort of primary care for my brother was seeing that like the intensive attempts of the conventional models of uh, drug addiction treatment, you know, being attempted, but not to no avail. And so when you dig into the real efficacy numbers around like 12 step or medication assisted therapy, psychotherapy, residential treatments, you know, for some of these things, the efficacy rates are like really unfortunately low, you know, with 12 step, which is an amazing resource to people. And thank God that it, it it's there. Um, but it is as low as five to 10%. The same could be said for residential treatment and tracking that over sort of a lifetime. It's, 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 it's the sort of cost benefit there is um, almost not worth talking about. So, you know, Personally, too, you know, the same household that built my brother, no slight to my parents, is a huge confluence of societal uh, and trauma-related issues on top of parenting, uh, did produce me as well, right? And so, um, you know, I was undertaking some pretty intensive trauma therapies in my mid-20s, uh, or late-20s, I guess now. God, I'm old. That sucks. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I was undertaking some pretty intensive trauma therapies about seven, six, seven, eight years ago. And I got to a therapeutic wall that 
no matter what we tried, I couldn't break through. You know, I was at this place where I was in a state of heightened activation, I was in fight or flight all the time. And every encounter that I had with new stimulus reminded me some, of some old stimulus. And like, really, uh, without being dramatic about this, I, I was at a tipping point. I didn't know what, what was over the tipping point, like what was beyond the edge of that cliff. Um, but I surmised that it was dark and bad. Um, and luckily at the time, a friend um, introduced the idea of DMT to me. Um, they said, hey, you know, there's nothing to lose. You, you know, at worst, it could be just a pleasant distraction. At best, it could, you know, help provide some really cool framing or really cool new perception. And so um, in a totally unguided way, I did DMT, self-administered DMT for a considerable number of days. And at the end of it, um, yeah, like I found that my whole perceptions were reordered. I was able to think about things that I was totally incapable of thinking about without going to this place of reaction um, before. Um, and then at the end of it, like I, you know, I still had some DMT, but I said, no, I think I've got the insights I need. And then I tried to, you know, I resumed just, or I uh, sort of went forth and lived the best years of my life. Um, yeah. And so those things together, seeing the lack of efficacy in the sort of treatment models that exist, knowing firsthand the transformative nature of DMT, even in unguided uh, context, um, knowing that I said, hey, like, you know, as it stands, like the options that exist aren't good enough. And, you know, with the sort of groundswell of interest, support and research that was happening last year, um, you know, with uh, Compass Pathways, for instance, uh, this is a work coming up, Johns Hopkins. Like, you know, I really said to myself, like, hey, I want to investigate if there's potential here. And if there's potential here, how do we best create a product that helps these people that are totally underserviced by um, the options that exist right now? And so, um, yeah, that's where it, uh, that's where it started. And what happened thereafter was, yeah, sort of, out of an uh, like you know excess of uh, I guess not humility but understanding I'm smart at some stuff I'm good at some stuff but I'm no psychedelic researcher um, you know I sort of made it my mission uh, my group we made it our mission to say hey who are the smartest people in the field let's really communicate to them um, our true intention of creating something to help people and then let's let these smart people tell us how the best way to treat these people uh, is. And so that's uh, what we arrived at, right? We um, took that intent, that belief, that passion, and really communicated it to people like, you know, Matthew Johnson, Ken Tupper, uh, who's an amazing guy, uh, Matthew Johnson, uh, Christopher Timmerman, Robin Card Harris, Malin Utah, Dennis McKenna, and said, we're serious about helping people. Let's iterate what the best solution for these people are. And ultimately what we arrived at is uh, what we're researching, which is the continuous infusion of DMT. Yeah, and that's just awful about your brother. It's, but the mission that you guys have put together is really powerful and I think really important. I, I, I can, can empathize a little bit. I've had friends that have struggled with very hardcore um, addiction problems as well. And I think, you know, us as a firm and why we, we really wanted to get involved in psychedelics fits kind of into the, that similar moat, the similar idea. It's like we see that there's really great promise where in a lot of areas, the treatments that are available haven't really worked. And there seems to be a lot of efficacy that, you know, these could be life changing things to help people with, you know, addiction, but also depression, anxiety, and all these different, different things. So 
um, I commend you very, very highly on, you know, what you guys are doing there. And I think it's, it's really important work. No. And I appreciate that. Yeah. It's uh, I think we exist in a really sort of like opportune moment and it's, it's unfortunate that uh, sort of the driving force and demand for this is driven by ultimately tragedy. Right. But like, yeah, I think, you know, not to speak a little of medical professionals, because like along the pathway that, um, you know, that the time that, um, you know, during which I cared for my brother and, uh, you know, ultimately uh, lost him, like it wasn't for lack of effort, like the medical profession, like there's a sincerity and there's a real desire to help people. But given the sort of, you know, the entrenchment of these sort of like, you know, uh, medication led beliefs and about how we can just sort of manage symptoms and like control symptoms and reduce impulsivity. Like, you know, there's an entrenchment there. Right. And I think right now, you know, with psychedelics, there's such a huge opportunity to really blow that open. Like, you know, where we say, Hey, we don't have to accept that necessarily. Like, you know, we understand that these things do like, and all these issues, right? Like depression, uh, depression, anxiety, and uh, addiction, like these are all manifestations of a similar set of internal sort of conflict, right? There's a similar set of like, you know, there's an existential state to which the brain, body and spirit, um, you know, say like, I'm uncomfortable here. There's something in my belief system that for whatever reason makes me feel like it's not okay. And so, um, yeah, I think with psychedelics, there's an opportunity to really address that and help there be some sort of like reconciliatory sort of consolidating effect. But, you know, for us, like it's really important that we house that properly, right? Like um, that it isn't just this free form thing where it's like, here's your psychedelic, good luck. You know, I know a number of people that sort of, uh, and not to speak, you know, from a boogeyman perspective, but I know people that have used psychedelics um, that maybe sort of tended towards certain psychiatric states that, you know, have gone into, you know, psychedelic induced manias, uh, where they're impervious to, you know, any sort of concern, care, recommendation from others. Um, and so it's really important to, I guess, couch these things within the context of appropriate therapy. Yeah, I think that's really important because uh, when people hear that, you know, um, there's psilocybin going to be available potentially, there's going to be MDMA, they think of it just as that, you know, they're just going to be able to take these drugs and that's going to solve their problems. But that the the therapy that, that takes place beforehand and then the integration, you know, post uh, the, the actual um, taking of the drugs is, is so important to help, you know, reconfigure how people think and how they want to approach things. Um, I think that sometimes can get lost, especially when people that aren't directly involved in the industry try to understand what's going on. So, yeah. yeah that's sure. um, but let's bring it back to, to DMT. We've, we've talked with folks that are, that are working with LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin. I think you're the first company that we've spoken to that is doing DMT-assisted treatment. Um, for addiction. So can you give us some more uh, background on why you're choosing to go with DMT? And are you guys looking to, you know, work with psilocybin or LSD? Or is it just going to be a DMT focus? Yeah, I mean, for us now, um, our primary focus is DMT. I think, you know, the realities of drug development are that it's super capital time and effort intensive, um, you know, to get something approved through the, you know, sort of apparatus that is sort of regulated drug approval. It's a, it's quite an effort. And so for us, we're trying not to uh, muddy the waters per se and say, you know, put our focus in too many places. Um, you know, 
it is a pretty arduous and intensive experience. And so uh, for now, uh, our, you know, our passions and our sights are set on uh, treating people with uh, life altering uh, drug addiction or substance use disorder problems. Um, that being said, um, you know, the sort of who knows what the future holds. Um, I think it's really important to sort of indicate why we um, chose DMT. Like, uh, sort of, I've spoken about this sort of in other places. You know, psychedelics are amazing, and psilocybin is absolutely a hugely valuable and high potential for positive effect um, <clears throat> substance and molecule. Um, but yeah, there's there's a multitude of reasons. There's quite a bit of research already being conducted in terms of psilocybin. But for us, in terms of um, how we're administering DMT, um, you know, we saw there were some key benefits to using DMT over psilocybin. Uh, we did consider it, of course, but, um, you know, ultimately land on DMT um, for some key reasons. Uh, you know, psilocybin, the reality is that the experience is a bit like a solid fuel rocket. Once you light the fuse, you're going for as long as the fuel exists within that, uh, I guess, you know, rocket right so it can last anywhere from four to eight hours and i think right now we're seeing a lot of really rigorously constructed clinical trials with a huge attention to detail in terms of how people are you know from a sort of exclusion criteria perspective who's safe to include in these trials um, and so because some of this sort of data is limited to you know numbering in the thousands i think it's a uh, you know the propensity or the possibility of negative adverse reactions to what is ultimately a hugely powerful experience are pretty reduced. But once you sort of scale that into the you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and potentially millions, um, we think that there's, you know, not an un, not an insignificant risk of there being negative adverse reactions, you know, when people do engage in these long form psychedelic experiences. Um, with DMT, it being a short acting powerful molecule, um, and intravenous being a really direct way of administering it, um, we see there being a value both from perspective of scalability and from safety. So for us, knowing that we can bring the person to this therapeutically useful, uh, powerful psychedelic state, uh, but doing so in such a way that, um, you know, doing so in such a way that we can time limit the experience to anywhere between 60 minutes to 180 minutes, we create the opportunity for more sort of um, I guess, custom customizability, if that's a word, um, in terms of the duration of that experience. Um, and then also from the perspective of safety, uh, whereas, you know, if you ingest psilocybin or LSD, for instance, um, the sort of state that you arrive at is, is not much tweaking that can take place after. And say if a person arrives at a place that is therapeutically not useful for them, it's in fact, you know, really distressing potentially. And, you know, it, the, the patient just isn't ready for it. Um, there's no real elegant way to stop that experience. So a person could just be in that place where they say, oh, I'm not liking it. This isn't good. I'm really not liking it. Um, and then, you know, it's the job of the facilitator or the physician to say, okay, let's try to try to work through it. Let's try to work through it. Um, with DMT, if it becomes apparent that the person is beyond red line and that their motor might blow, um, we can stop the experience, uh, you know, stop the flow of DMT and have that person return to a functional baseline in about 15, 20 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes. Um, yeah. Because, so this is used through an IV then? Yes. Yeah. And so that's like, we see that as being a really key feature where, um, of course, you know, it's going to be, you know, difficulty 
is your friend in the psychedelic experience. Um, but there are points where, you know, a level of difficulty goes outside of the realm of being useful. That's our presumption, at least. And so, um, yeah, in the event that, that happens, uh, we can titrate the experience or cease it altogether and say, hey, let's revisit this, um, you know, again, when you're more prepared. So, so you're doing trials already? Um, no, no, not yet. We will, we have our uh, clinical trials or our contract research organization uh, agreement signed, um, you know, all the necessary permissions, both from a handling perspective, um, ethics committee perspective are all being handled and submitted now. Um, and we're super confident that um, that will take place. Um, but yeah, all going well and COVID permitting. We live in a world where all things are, we need the permission of COVID uh, to allow us to do this. Uh, but all things going well, COVID permitting, we should be uh, conducting our first human trial in hopefully Q2, Q3 of uh, 2021. So you guys, I, I read that you had filed for four patents in the U.S. in 2020. Can you expand upon those? Yeah, totally. Um, so one of uh, our early patents was, you know, based on that uh, idea, um, you know, taking the known effects, the sort of presumed anecdotal effects of uh, I Ayahuasca, ayahuasca being uh, organically sourced, um, sort of uh, organic concoction of... Uh, yeah, like the drink. Yeah, the drink, right? Like knowing that it's going to be really difficult from a repeatability and dosability perspective to bring that into, you know, the clinic or have a doctor prescribe that. Uh, we went down the route initially of actually um, formulating an, a pharmahuasca, so a pharmaceutical ayahuasca combination. But, um, you know... Into talking with our regulatory consultants, the difficulty of that uh, became pretty apparent, right? You start, start combining molecules, uh, one of which is, you know, not super well known from the perspective of the DEA or the FDA, and you're going to encounter some problems. And also, yeah, that sort of idea of ceasability or the titratability of the experience, uh, it sort of goes out the window too. And so ultimately, we arrived on continuous infusion single molecule DMT. Um, and so, yeah, in order for us to do that, we put together some patents around the specific administration of how we're going to dose this, like at what, what rates and what dosages are needed to arrive at these specific therapeutically useful um, sort of experience levels. And so we submitted for some uh, specific use patents around DMT, um, how to uh, center ground, how to treat, uh, you know, uh, nicotine addiction, opiate addiction, and alcoholism. Um, and those are really important, right? The, those are some of the most deadly afflictions and not just from a statistical death perspective, but some of the also most chaotic afflictions that sort of bring most societal harm. So yeah, we have provisional patents filed there uh, specific to you know, how the DMP is administered and the specific experience type as it relates to the dosing protocol. Okay, so I was reading through your website, you guys mentioned the, the right technology then. So can you expand upon that a little bit so that I'm just trying to understand more about the technology? Right. I'm not at liberty to say exactly specific okay. about the technology, but yeah, yeah, ultimately, you know, our, you know, the, how the drug works won't just happen on its own, right? There's a specific um, need to have this specifically administered. And so, um, yeah, just, uh, we're working on that and, uh, 
from a disclosures perspective, I don't know what I'm uh, able to yet say that, you know, for contracts that aren't uh, sort of fully signed or the details of which are not yet uh, publishable. Gotcha. Yeah, sorry. Sorry to be <laughs> doing that, you know, it's a secret sauce. Trying to get you there. Well, let's actually switch over to actually probably some of the bigger news that you can talk about, um, which we're recording this at the end of November. Um, I believe this is going to run around December 10th, but you guys recently went public on the CSE as, a, you know, a lot of other psychedelics companies are, are making that jump, either the CSE or the NEO. Can you talk to us about, you know, why do this now and what it's going to do for the company? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good question. I think it's been put to us a number of times, like why not stay private? Why not stay private? Um, the reality is, is that this drug development timeline is pretty intensive. It's, it's a long time horizon. And along the way, there's a lot of money that needs to be spent. Um, and not only that, from a pure drug discovery perspective, uh, for which you need you know, dozens of millions of dollars, um, but also from the perspective of wanting to optimize, um, you know, not not just that drug discovery pipeline uh, or that drug discovery regulatory conversation, but also, you know, doing things that sort of speak to this future use case where um, it's not just an approved drug, but there are a bunch of uh, technological and experiential add-ons that make it more robust or enjoyable or optimize it for patient success. So, um we believe that going to the public markets um, allows us to, you know, based on the sort of strength of our timeline and our assumptions about these various de-risking events that will take place um, as we move through the safety and efficacy, um, you know, really, you know, hoping to promote confidence in, in the sort of investment community about, hey, these guys are doing the right things. They're taking all the necessary steps and following along this really well understood um, drug approval process. Um, and as that happens, you know, ask, going back to the market and sort of asking for uh, money based on the proof of what we've done um, so that we can raise money at higher valuations. It's a benefit to not only our original shareholders, um, but also giving the opportunity for people that are concerned with not just making money, uh, investors concerned with not just making money, but also giving them the opportunity to get involved in something that is hey, occupies that rare Venn diagram overlap of like, hey, potential, uh, you know, good investment, but also potential huge uh, societal impact. So um, giving investors an opportunity to come into our story, uh, to hear about us and, uh, you know, raising value, raising valuations um, that are higher and sort of ultimately beneficial to our shareholders as we progress through along this uh, process. Okay, so um, since, since I struck out earlier on the technology question, um, SciGen Labs, can you talk about, can you give us, you know, some background on that? Yeah, no, great, great group of people over in Calgary, Alberta. Um, they have Health Canada's only, uh, I believe I need to make sure that this is the case, but uh, to my understanding, they have Health Canada's only, uh, the, the only Health Canada certified producer of, certain psychedelic molecules of which DMT is super pertinent to us. Uh, they're, yeah, they're producing GMP standard DMT for us, uh, which is obviously hugely, um, hugely necessary. Um, you know, you can't conduct uh, human clinical trials unless it's to GMP standard. And so a really amazing group of people there with a really a sort of robust history of, uh, you know, sort of business operations and drug synthesis. 
Uh, they've been an absolute treat to work with. And it's really nice that we have um, a manufacturing partner uh, supplying us with a drug material that's, you know, over the mountain range, but, you know, not, you know, not too far from being in our back door. Um, so they've been an absolute treat to work with. And um, yeah, it's uh, really satisfying. It's a super necessary component of our business model. So growth plans, let's, can you, can you tell us about your growth plans and, you know, what, what do you see happening here in the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, we are staying adherent to our core mission, which is, you know, developing this out in a, you know, sometimes dry, but super necessary uh, clinical development uh, sort of framework. That being said, um, you know, we do see the need for um, considerations for, uh, you know, a variety of other accompanying sort of components of the psychedelic experience. And so, um, you know, we're really interested in looking at um, some partners that would uh, help to develop out elements of the psychedelic experience that would make the delivery of the psychedelic more tolerable, more enjoyable, and help to bolster, um, you know, chances of success during the experience as well as after the experience. So, um, again, the ink isn't uh, dry on some of these things, so I can't go into too much detail. But uh, looking at really optimizing the entire psychedelic drug uh, program in such a way that's not only useful to us from a research uh, and development perspective for our own product, but uh, you know, hopefully has some applicability to the uh, larger psychedelic market. And so, um, yeah, you know, we you know we think that within uh, sort of drug addicted populations, there's a huge opportunity and a huge unmet need. Um, but, you know, sort of pointing ourselves to address some concerns that maybe exist outside of just uh, our core product uh, silo, you know, addressing some concerns that would be, um, I guess, universally applicable to people, um, you know, that are looking to, you know, undertake psychedelic practicing um, that could be sort of just adding to that experience from a safety and optimization perspective. Well, I know we're really excited to, to continue to follow your story and we're definitely going to want you, you know, six months, 12 months back on the show to talk to us about that growth. But um, we're, we're kind of nearing the end of our interview and where I always like to go uh, with our guests is I, I like to pull out the crystal ball. I want you to have your crystal ball here. Let's look into the future. What do you expect to see in for the psychedelic space in 2021 or even beyond that as we see, you know, policy, research and data you know, continue to mature and, and, and grow? Interesting question. I've, uh, it's been, that's a really super interesting question. Had you asked me six months ago, the whole answer would be different. I think, you know, and it changed day to day. So don't, uh, you're going to quote me on this, but I'd say don't quote me on this. I think we're going to have, um, yeah, an acceleration of the pace at which the public demands these things. Uh, we're seeing such a sort of transformation of public consciousness and sort of cultural acceptance of this, uh, which wasn't the case 12 months ago, right? So it's like we've already sort of come leaps and bounds from a position of sort of conversation, dialogue around it, uh, dialogue extending to the point of, you know, even introduction of pr propositions and uh, legalization and decriminalization, uh, you know, proposals to uh, legislation. So the pace at which that that is accelerating is massive and super encouraging, right? We think, um, uh, yeah, there's a huge demand for based on some of the things that we talked about, sort of obvious sort of lack of efficacy in some of the things, but also from the perspective of like, hey, you know, people are demanding these things because, hey, you know, they're allowed to, people are allowed to do a 
lot stupider things, right? People are allowed to like <laughs> drink in excess and there's no, there's no ban on that. And so um, it's interesting to see that synthesis of a new sort of understanding about, uh, I guess, personal choice also. Um, for us, you know, in terms of where we exist within that, as much as that conversation happens and people ask for them, we just see that as a rising tide. That's sort of going to bring all boats up. Um, for us, you know, not being engaged in that recreational use uh, conversation or that, um, you know, shamanistic practitioner sort of conversation, we really do need to sort of stay on the beam as it applies to the necessary, again, sometimes dry, but super necessary uh, regulatory thing. So for us, in terms of where this land in five years or, uh, yeah, it's hard to say. I think the the people, with regard to the industry, I think the people that are doing the real meaningful clinical trials-based work or really trying to address a, um, address a user need or a population demographic need, um, you know, they will have progressed to the point where, you know, they're teetering on the edge of approval. Um, and I think that if the public that is demanding these things is vocal about that, hopefully there's a beautiful confluence of um, sort of public demand societal pressure as well as sort of availability of options and uh, maybe regulators uh, such as the FDA uh, sort of look at these things um, and, you know, sort of take the momentum and the demand for that and say, hey, yeah, we're, we're switching these things on and we're granting some um, acceptance of these things based on the validity of the empirically tracked and, you know, gathered data around efficacy and safety. I can't say too much about the nature of the industry. Things pop up overnight. Uh, you know, some in the sort of rec space, the consumable space, the technology space. Um, so yeah, my my crystal ball only goes so far <laughs> as to where we want to go. Um, and uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully where we are in five years is uh, yeah, just uh, with an improved product that the public needs. So be, before we let you go, what is the biggest untold story about psychedelics and psychedelic-based uh, treatments that you can, that you think of? Yeah, if you were going to, uh, you know, open up the New York Times, Tim, and you were going to see, you wanted to see a psychedelic story, what's the story that you think is not being told right now? Hmm, that's, uh, it's, that's a really uh, good question. You guys are good with the good questions. <laughs> oh, huh? Thank you. Yeah, nice. Um no, so I think, um, yeah, the untold story is going to be the individual story, I think. You know, like um, right now we hear a lot about the potential and the science and the, um, you know, the research that's been done, the history, the, you know, who first synthesized LSD and where the research went and stopped. I think the really untold story is the personal one, right? Which is all so it's so ethereal, so difficult to express. Like even my own personal story about, hey, I was in a really dark place. A bunch of beautiful images and difficult feelings uh, took place within my mind, in my body, in my spirit, um, and then at in a way that's really hard to articulate, has evaded poets for decades. As a result of this really beautiful experience, I no longer felt like the world was this really crushing, heavy cage where my limitations were set and my perspectives were cemented and certain. Um, that really, I think that untold story of, and each one's going to be different, but that story of like, I used to not want to live. I used to have to take heroin every day 
to not feel like I was going to collapse. That story, I think, is going to be like the really meaningful one where people are uh, get to that place where they say, I have hope now and I see a point in living. And that's going to be the really impactful one. And that's, uh, sorry, guys, getting a little choked up. Uh, here. You're, you're I, think, I think that's the most meaningful story. And I'm really excited for the day that that comes out. And that's a well-known uh, thing. And I think that it will be that beautiful proof pudding uh, that, uh, you know, uh, is going to be super impactful. I 100% agree. And I think that's a, a really powerful way to to end this episode. Tim, thank you so much for, for sharing your story, for walking us through Entheon. This was a treat. And like I said, we'd really love to have you back on the on the show again soon. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. It's been a, yeah, it's been a great opportunity. I love, uh, love having the opportunity to talk to you guys. A special thanks to Tim Coe at Entheon Biomedical. You can learn more about the company by checking out their website, entheonbiomedical.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you want to chat with us, find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We'd love to hear your feedback and guest ideas. And make sure you're subscribing to our newsletter going out uh, every Thursday as well as subscribing to us and your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.